0: You're listening to the Ascolite Wavelength Podcast. Ascolite is a globally recognized, internationally connected community of professionals and academics working to enhance learning and teaching through the pedagogical use of technologies. Find out more at ascolite.org. That's A S C I L I T E.org.
1: Welcome to this edition of the Askelyte Wavelength Podcast. I'm your guest host, Sandra Barker. In this episode, Michael Cowling talks with Australian Research Council Laureate Fellow Michael Milford about all things learning and science communication. Amanda White concludes her series on academic integrity, examining the issues and alternatives in online exams. And lastly, our students tell us what motivated them to pursue studies in higher education, in the student voice. First up, Michael Cowling talks with Michael Milford from QUT. Professor Milford is an Australian Research Council Laureate Fellow, which is a high honour awarded to researchers who demonstrate world-class research and strong links with community, industry, and research end users. We now go over to the two Michaels. Welcome, Michael.
2: Thanks for having me on, good to see you, Michael.
3: Great to speak to you too. So I think the first thing is, first and foremost, as I mentioned in the introduction, you you are a fairly, to, fairly recently minted ARC Laureate Fellow. And so I think, as is often the case when you win a big award or a big grant, everybody always asks, starts by asking you, well, how did you do it? And so I'm going to get that out of the way by saying to you, first and foremost, how did you do it?
2: I I did it by being very fortunate to be well supported by my mentors, my peers, my research groups over the last uh, almost two decades now, and being able to pursue a continuous stream of research into the topic area of my eventual uh, Laureate Fellowship, which is biologically inspired uh, navigation systems uh, for robots and everything in between. Um, I've been very fortunate to be able to do this research for almost 20 years. Um, and because of that, we've made great advances in our understanding of how to create really high capability technology for, for robots and autonomous vehicles and, and other um, machines. Um, and what we're gonna do in this Laureate Fellowship with quite a large uh, research team and bunch of collaborators from all around the world, from many disciplines, is try and create a ubiquitous uh, positioning system that will serve as a viable alternative to GPS uh, going into the future.
3: Awesome, awesome. So yeah, that's, that's great. So what's so so I was going to ask you what your what your favourite discipline project project has been in robotics or technology over those last 20 years, I suspect that the answer is going to be the one that you're doing now as an ARC laureate fellow, but maybe not. So I'll ask the question, what's your what's been your favourite project you've done?
2: Uh, in in the research field, I think it was the the first really substantial project that I did, which was my PhD, which started back in two thousand and three, and it had the same broad topic, which was um, biologically inspired navigation for robots. And so, what we were trying to do is model how the human brain and how animal brains uh, navigate the world, and try and replicate that on a robot. But back then, when we were doing it, although there'd been some research on it previously, so much of it was brand new completely undiscovered territory and so the things that we had to grapple with and and some of this is the uh benefits of sort of looking back with fond nostalgia some of it was very tough at the time and frustrating but doing that sort of free form completely unfettered research where we really didn't know what was going to happen was uh, incredibly challenging but also amazingly uh, fulfilling and exciting and so i think overall that was probably my favorite project
3: Wow, I'm not entirely sure any professor I've ever spoken to would say I like my PhD the best.
2: <laughs> you have to give it enough time uh to look at it, I think is the key.
3: You've got to have enough perspective on it. I like that. So so that's awesome, thank you. So but as well as that and in, in the context that you and I met each other. And I think the context for Ascalite as well is that you're also a, a massive STEM communicator or science communicator or psychom if you want to use the hashtag. So talk to us a little bit about your science communication. And in particular, I'm interested in in why. I mean, you're, you're an ARC Laureate Fellow. You don't have to do any science communication and you would still be wildly, success, wildly successful as a professor. So why do you do SciComm?
2: that's a great question i guess i should note I, I suspect i partially got the arc laureate fellow and i don't know how exactly they assessed it because of my sort of lifelong commitment to psycom uh, increasingly researchers have a, a responsibility to really do outreach and engagement around their field um, because without the communication without the public and industry and government understanding what you do why you do it and why it's important um, it's sort of a moot point point. and so i think that's a big part of what my research career is about nowadays as to how I got into it, although nowadays it's very planned and structured, it was it was almost by accident in high school, going all the way up to high school, I discovered that I in, found it incredibly enjoying and fulfilling to try and explain very complex concepts to classmates. So they could have been in maths, it could have been in physics, any of the sort of STEM sciences. And so I had this, I discovered this love of trying to take relatively complex topics and distill them down into very digestible bits and what happened is that translated into a tutoring job when I was at university once again very ad hoc um, manner and during uh, one exam period early in my university days I finished exams a week earlier than all my friends and so I had nothing to do and so I wrote a textbook that summarized all of these uh, snippets on how to explain math concepts that I've been developing over many years at the time, I think I was um, 18 at the time when I wrote this. Um, without thinking about feasibility or what would happen that was one of the beauties of doing things back then I, I wasn't really planning anything. I got it printed as a textbook I got 40 copies printed I put them in a local Dimex bookstore at Christmas. And um, got a little bit of publicity and a mass textbook sold out at Christmas time and then it continued to sell up with every new print run we got 100 200 300 500,000 books that kept selling out. Um, And then, since then i've never really looked back i've done a lot of projects like that, since then we've had about 20 books um, workshops uh, all sorts of uh, edutainment type stuff. Um, but that was really the origins of, of my lifelong interest in doing all of that outreach and engagement and education.
3: Just a, just a love of learning and a love of teaching in a way as well, and sharing that knowledge. That's, that's awesome. I, I will say that I, I have the same love of teaching and and learning and I I always thought it was something you had to have as a professor and it was only as I got a little bit older that I realised that not everybody necessarily has that love of learning. Sometimes people just like to explore and discover things and I think it's awesome that you're interested in both exploring and discovering and you describe that in your doctorate as well as uh, communicating as well. That's great. So tell us a little bit about uh, what you're doing in that space now in the STEM communication space, because I know that another relatively new venture for you is pushing out a little bit more in that space as well.
2: Yeah, so I have a startup called um, Math Thrills, which has funding from a variety of sources. We do Kickstarter projects. It's also got some funding from my university's um, commercialization arm as well. Um, and we've gone through a few phases um, of that initiative. So initially, we tried to embed education in high school, primarily education in in maths, primarily into entertainment. So we did uh, sort of action-packed workshops where we created. Uh, it wasn't a bomb, but it looked like a bomb, sort of mock bombs which involve code cracking exercises. They are three D printed. Uh, we did a lot of. Um, Uh, educational workshops around movies so we did some stuff at world science festival and then we created a whole stream of books including a maths novel thriller and so I got a professional writer and a co-writer and we wrote uh, two versions of a young adult novel that was stealthily embedded with maths concepts all throughout Uh, that one's called code bravo Uh, still one of my my proudest achievements because it was really hard to do Um, and more recently because it's very tough We found it very tough to create really edgy content for teenagers that is still acceptable in a widespread didactic setting in schools like it's a very tough boundary to to walk much easier to do that at a k to primary level because the what constitutes entertainment there is much simpler there's no violence there's no challenging concepts it's just fun little stories and so we've done a lot more of uh, recent work in the sort of primary school um, area because it's it's less challenging in many ways, um, and you have a bigger chance to influence people earlier uh, in their educational journey. And so that's what we've been focusing on primarily.
3: Awesome, awesome. Yes, I've 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 had the same sort of epiphany when it comes to ed- education. People often say to me, "Well, you're in you're a professor. Why do you work in high? Why why not?" just higher education why k to 12 why as you said k to six primary and my my argument has always been well education's education it doesn't really matter and i think your your argument that we get to them early is is what i've often made the argument for as well but i think siloing things into primary education and secondary education and tertiary education i'm not entirely sure that makes sense and i love the fact that the books that you write for example are intended for for younger kids, because I think it's never too early to teach them about robots and and artificial intelligence and what you do. Uh, so tell me a little bit about how you then bring this back. Because one of you, one of your other jobs, apparently your many your many many hats that you wear, is as acting director of the robotic centre at QUT. And so tell me a little bit about. If you bring that kind of stuff back to your job as the director, is there an opportunity for you to try and get some of those other academics out of their ivory tower? And uh, if not, if you don't want to de- de- betray any of the secrets at QUT, just in general, talk to me about getting academics out of their ivory tower and, and whether you think that's worth doing for people apart from from you and me.
2: Yeah, look, it's I I think for the vast majority of researchers, it's vital that they they get out and about and engage with sort of as wide a cross section of society as possible, because you learn so much in interacting um, with all these different groups and for me it's been a I I enjoy it, but it's also been a phenomenally uh, uh, eye opening experience interacting with with pretty much every sector of society in in my job. And the overlaps with education and outreach and your own research there's there's many synergies like being able to communicate the key essence of what your research is about will benefit your research, the research papers, you publish the grants that you submit. Um, And so it's a very uh, synergistic sort of thing to do, and I think in defence of academics nowadays, I think a lot of them know this already and to some extent participate in a lot of these outreach and engagement activities, I know our group is quite public facing, like all of our academics regularly do workshops or talks um, outward facing Uh, and so that's something that we embrace and it's particularly important in transformative tech fields like robotics or AI, for example, where there's this hunger to understand it. Uh, there's this need to understand it and the more we can bring everyone up to sort of having that intuitive understanding of what AI and robotics is so they understand it as well as they understand how a car works. Um, that's vitally important because then you have an informed society and an informed society will generally make relatively good decisions and, and that's that's basically the essence of it.
3: I love that. I love that idea of an informed society. That ultimately, if you get to teach the general public about robotics and AI and the stuff that you do, then then society as a whole knows more about the field, and that's good for us as academics. And it becomes a very circular process. So that's awesome. So I've got one more question to ask you, and then I'll I'll let you off the hook. So imagine you could you could wave a magic wand. You could change one thing about technology and education tomorrow, and so you you noted early on that this progressive approach of, of your career over twenty odd years. But it, let's imagine an alternate dimension or a time, you know, a portal or something like that, or the opportunity to wave a magic wand. What would you change about technology or education or technology in education to make things better?
2: Uh, that's an easy one. So technology is often put forward as a sort of uh solve everything magic ingredient right you just add it to whatever your problem is and it solves everything and of course that is 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 wrong I think the extra challenge that technology faces in education though is that education is this incredibly challenging minefield of different theories to how we should teach how we should learn um and when you add technology into the picture uh the the potential value of technology gets massively muddied and confounded by all of these ongoing ideological arguments that are going on there's your light. Um, And so it's not just the technology has to be reasonably fit for purpose, but it gets lumped into these other high bars of having to meet whichever particular educational ideology the particular party is pursuing and that just makes it pretty much intractable. And so I would love if there was a, a magical scenario where technology was still held to a high standard it had to be uh, sustainable it had to be achieving the actual outcomes that we want, but it wasn't also being subject to this sort of ongoing scrutiny about different learning uh, theories uh, which apply just as much to non technological ways of learning as they do to technology that's it that's
3: interesting and I often yeah with my class talk about that Do you know that we the, did we have did we have 10 years of debate before somebody decided to wheel a tv into the classroom and play play something on the television right introduce early technology and we didn't and yet we seem to have that level of debate these days with technology and and get very caught up in all of that kind of stuff so I think that's a that's a great wish I'll, I will try my best to to, <laughs> to ask my fairy godmother for you because i'll'll I'll, I'll pay that one entirely so okay so that's that's it thank you so much michael it's uh it's been a, a quick uh fire interview but uh I think hopefully we've gotten some great insight into into technology and how you think technology fits into education so thank you so much for being on the Ascolite wavelength
2: Thanks, Michael. It was great to chat. Great to chat to you, too.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Ascolite and TELAS, the Technology Enhanced Learning Accreditation Scheme. TELAS is a rigorously derived framework that recognizes quality online learning through certification access the standards for free, and find out how to get your course certified at www.telas.edu.au. Now, back to our podcast.
1: Welcome back. Dr. Amanda White now concludes her three-part series highlighting issues and challenges in academic integrity. In this segment, Amanda chats with Gerhard Hambusch, Senior Lecturer in Finance at UTS.
4: I'm here with Dr. Gerhard Hambusch from uh, UTS, and he is a Senior Lecturer in the finance discipline, I know Gerhard because we talk a lot about academic integrity and he's done some fantastic work in trying to figure out how to check for integrity in written uh, responses in learning management system quizzes, where he has a whole workflow to be able to run these types of quiz responses through Turnitin. Gerhard, welcome. If you could have anything to support academic integrity with your students and use of technology, what would it be?
5: Hi, Amanda, and thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited to speak about something as important as academic integrity, in, in particular in COVID times where many people sit at home and do their exams or quizzes or other assessments. Um, so thank you. I think um, academic integrity starts all up with you know, information. So I think uh, it is very important that when we talk about technology in, in a minute, that students do not only get then hopefully be identified if they do wrong uh, through means of technology. But I mean, students have to first understand what they ought to do or what they what they shall not do in order to properly respond and act uh, during these assessments. For example, when they take them from home or from any other locations than, for example, a university room and hence i think it is important that we educate undergraduates you know about things like plagiarism any third party help that's that's used by students and students also need to understand what are the violations uh, that uh, that they could be actually uh, undertaking because this could ultimately destroy an academic career and at least uh, from my personal experience when i studied in the united states at the postgraduate level it was very clear that if anybody would cheat in their program that be kicked out of, out of the university, and they'd lose their, their fees, their school fees, they would pay for the program and stuff. So we took sometimes exams in empty rooms where the professor went out, and you know 25 people sat in an MBA class and took assessments. So that was a very important experience for me, but I was well informed what mm-hmm. I would be facing if I'd be perhaps courageous enough to look at my neighbor's paper. So that's, I think, the first thing, you know, information. And I know that users uh, help so for example a university expert such as as yourself Amanda here at UTS you've provided me with help by by for example recording a little video clip that i can show to my, my students you know before we start engaging in the semester and even during so that students have a chance maybe from a from another face <laughs> the face that's not the subject matter expert uh, to to one more time be educated but also being um, being reminded of what can be happening if they were to Um, be smarter than a fifth grader so to speak so that's Mm. I think that's the first point I want to make.
4: And that's interesting because quite often we talk about academic integrity at the beginning of the semester but it sort of falls out of students minds and so having key points where we might be able to remind them um, even when they're perhaps submitting an assignment have you remembered these rules Um, that could be really interesting and what else did you have in mind of ways that you think technology could help support us well, and students in academic integrity
5: so so what i was thinking is that of course this information piece also comes back into technology just the way you just described it so you know frequent reminders for example when a quiz or an assessment starts with a with a small uh, reminder of a line of text or two lines of text that will perhaps refresh um, a stressed mind you know when they're taking assessment but let's let's talk a bit about the before piece when, when we now assess like technology and t- and the way how we can use them with assessments, for example, at university. So, um, I think it's important to build smart assessments. And, you know, an organization like UTS provides a wealth of resources. I trust other universities and educational organizations do the same. But to build assessments that are somewhat smart in order not to be gamed or plagiarized uh, by students that are out there to to win the game without uh, really studying. And so for example um, we have different means of students but yes multiple choice is still a workhorse at least to some extent in some assessments uh, in larger classes and the use of test banks is known to everybody but to build clever test banks Mm. or let's say test banks that um, that facilitate uh, the uh, academic integrity overall uh, that probably needs to be needs to be learned from an educator side so you know you can you can have qualitative questions with 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 funky fancy interesting names, but if the name is like mine, Gerhard Hambusch, and that is one out of 100 question in the bank questions in the bank, and students have over time tried to extract the bank by means of taking photos, they just have to search for Gerhard Hambusch. Hmm. So why not calling everybody in every case David Smith or Lisa Brown, and that makes it. I mean, I'm just giving one simple example that makes it much harder for those that try to quickly. Uh, run through, you know, um, harvested banks uh, to find, to find a question that they maybe on the fly want to cheat on. Um, Certainly it would be great if organizations like universities provide uh, help on cloning of assessment pieces. I know that cloning is important and with uh, quantitative questions, perhaps much easier because you can change numbers, uh, probably change the setup slightly and that makes it very hard than to just um, take a screenshot of another student and try to um, reverse engineer the solution. But when it comes to qualitative items, uh, cloning uh, can be well-defined. I would embrace you know, if organizations can can do a bit more with with us, the educators, around these uh, learning goals, maybe. Oh,
4: that's um, really interesting. And did so you have that, anything else?
5: Uh, yeah, I have a couple of more things. And of course, uh, I'm inviting you to <laughs> pick and choose what you like here. But ideally, a management system uh, permits, for example, not only randomizing questions on one list, but also randomizing of buckets that are that represent a list. So I'd, I'd be I'd love to have more randomization choices when it comes to setting up b- the use of banks, for example. Mm. And to be honest with you, I'd love to to further improve on on assessments. And this is probably a very naive ask. I'd love something like you know, Canvas at UTS offers the chance to check URLs with one with a push of a button. I can check if any of the hyperlinks are broken. Mm-hmm. I'd love just, you know, as an additional diligence check of my now super developed bank or or test that I have one button that just quickly runs me through not to have made a mistake in spelling David Smith or Lisa Brown when I was, you know, <laughs> when I was trying to set this uh, in a clever fashion. So that, that's just a side side note, I guess. Mm. During, during an assessment, I'd love to see uh, that, you know, information is repeated. You know, do not cheat. Uh, just be reminded. And I've seen people coming into to assessments and harvesting them. So they come in and after four minutes, they're done. Obviously, those are the straw people that come in and then extract an exam and then share it. I'd love some additional technology, simple means like, say, you know, if a multiple choice question is set up for 90 seconds, why allowing them within two seconds to run through this and make screenshots? Why not having a lock in there, say, 30 seconds or 40 seconds, just to, to, to yeah. use harvesters to work very efficiently? Yeah. And of course, I'd love to see flags all over the place. We need a dashboard, you know, as educators, so we could see, you know, if someone takes a quiz in a rocket time, a record time, sorry, rocket speed, a record time, um, you know, why don't I get flags? Like here's a person that took a 30 minute quiz in three minutes and got 89%. Mm. Like, wow, that's that's a good student, isn't it?
4: Yeah.
5: Or isn't he or she, but um, I'd love to see that. So, so some dashboard information. And probably the main piece, what I'm, what I'd love to see is after the assessment, for example multiple choice question chain detection algorithms and and if those need to work with banks across several hundred students that becomes quite a complex task mm. to assess probabilities of people having just exchange exchanged um, answer chains the quick test take as i already said that would be great if my dashboard pings me a timeline analysis who started early who started late and who comes up with the same questions maybe along with the chain detection perhaps an automation check if answers to a question makes sense. So the example is, if I have two groups, I I quiz them with open answer essay questions, and those are brother and sister questions. Of course, I'm using maybe David Smith in one question and Lisa Brown in the other question. But if someone in the first group, in the David Smith group, answers with with Lisa Brown, I need to find that. But it would be nice if, you know, some easy algorithm tells me, hey, here's someone that has something Mm, clever. There's often
4: an, an expectation that academics or educators who are marking assessments become human lie detectors. You know, we're looking for those differences. And I think one of the things that we've, you and I have talked a lot about is why isn't there turn it in for learning management system quizzes where we have written questions. And I know that you do this extensive prog- process where you extract into a CSV and then you load that CSV into starter and then you create reports and then you <laughs> compare them. Yep. And it's a significant volume of work um, and one of the things that I think that as an industry, we're also stuck in, we not really stuck, but we're constrained by, is the financial situation of universities. Uh, quite often there are other test-taking platforms or tools that we could use, but everything in edtech costs money. And it's always, well, okay, how do we prioritize this? Institutions all across Australia are, are feeling the pinch in terms of pennies. And so... Like me, like you, you know, you've turned to this DIY process to check for plagiarism within learning management system quizzes, and a lot of these other things you've talked about require a good time, um, time both you know, actual time and then money investment to make them happen. So, thank you for all of these wonderful ideas that are going to be shared with our Ascolite community.
5: Thank you very much, Amanda, for having me, and I look forward to discussing more about academic integrity in the future. Thank you.
0: We spoke with students across Australasia about contemporary issues in tertiary education. This is what they said. This is The Student Voice. Welcome to this month's The Student Voice. We know that learner motivation is critical in student engagement. We were curious what's motivating today's students to participate in tertiary education and what they feel they are getting out of the experience. We spoke to...
6: Hi, I'm Ghani. I'm a doctoral student originally from Sri Lanka.
7: Zach, studying a Bachelor of Science Education in my third year with a chemistry major.
8: I'm Juliana, a maturated postgrad student in education.
7: So what motivated you to participate in tertiary education? Yeah, I think when I was in high school, it was almost never a thought to not go into higher education because I was always really into science or like some kind of technology. My my initial, uh, you know, during career was to be like a geneticist. And so any real pathway that I saw that let me down to like a career that I wanted was really, uh, really required uh, tertiary education. So the one that I've ended up with um, being teaching uh, at the current moment, for the very least, um, you require a bachelor's degree at the very least or a master's to add on. Um, So it was almost it sounds weird to say it wasn't an option, but just for the way I wanted to live my life, it was never really a question.
8: I can't say that I really knew what I wanted to do, but I come from a country that um, going to university is just a flow. So if you finish your high high school year 12, you just have to go to university. So it's not something that you you really know what you're doing, but at the end, that's where you go to. Um, I always loved studying, and my first graduation wasn't really into what I wanted. I figured out that I was doing B.D.H.B. Um, and on my third year, I just decided that, now that's not exactly what I want. So I did my second graduation, and I just felt like the hunger or studying more and knowing more about some specific subjects. That's how I went to post student um, studies, yeah.
6: Thinking back education, I think it was most of my upbringing. I've grown up in a family full of academics and professionals. So that is what I always saw growing up. And it was kind of like the standard in the family. And I had no other way out. But having said that, I'm not saying that in a negative sense. That was very encouraging. And as I, as the years went by, that is why I, that is what I wanted to do as well. And my mom, uh, she's an academic lecturer, so this that's what I saw day in and out growing up. And I think that's why I kind of saw tertiary education as my path, why I want to be there, and you know, I found my place in the family wanting to be in higher education, going into higher education. Uh, There was no other way out as well.
0: What is the value you're deriving from your tertiary education experience?
7: I think pursuing further education, aside from like, you know, getting me a degree that will enable me to become a teacher. It is a really good avenue that you kind of do get the opportunity to taste a few different things that you're interested in um you know so for example i did start with a bio major um then i went to chemistry it's kind of just this being in higher education there's always opportunity to try different things whether it be academic um you know choosing a major or like uh different job opportunities so i've had uh maybe five or six positions around the uni um or like varying job descriptions and just the we can really gain from that has been like a really positive experience for me in terms of like teamwork, leadership, um management has been a huge one. Um it was kind of a skill I didn't realize I had no real clue about my level of. And uh <laughs> I got into a management position and I figured it out very quick how well how well my skills were. <laughs> um so I think yeah, further education to me kind of is just like it is a challenge that you can you can rise up to. If you want to, or you can kind of just peter on, get your degree if you'd like. But it's kind of an area that lets me challenge myself if I want to. If I want more challenge, I can. If I want to back it, um, you know, reduce the difficulty, I can if I like. Um, at this point in my life, I think it's definitely where I need to be, because it's given me the the space I need to grow with the support services around me, whether it be my fellow students or, you know, the academics. Um, it's kind of giving me that the routine, especially that You know so actually want to be this is how i need to do it
6: so pursuing further education and just relating that to what values i would get day in and out relationships around me were evolving around higher education people engaging in professions and learning getting involved in higher education so first thing i would say growing up it gave me a place within my inner circle like family and now that I'm doing my PhD I would say it is that contentment I get waking up every day curious what can I know more about the research that I'm doing that keeps me engaged and it gives me an opportunity to open my mind and be free I guess because that's the lifestyle I saw and I find value in pursuing higher education uh, and engaging in higher education and looking for a career out of higher education as well. I would say, especially with the family, uh, seeing everyone working in education industry, like I wanted to be there. Now it's just passion and there's a lot of contentment uh, coming through. Uh, But it sounds very cliche when I say this, but it is at the same time we are in a world that education qualifications open up a lot of doors. I'm a very career oriented person. If I don't have paper qualifications, I'm gonna get stuck at one point because I value my career the most currently. That is one of my other avenues to look at. Like I find value in engaging and investing time in higher education
8: think there are more um, opportunities and um, more challenges as well that make you grow, as um, not only as a student, but as a person, as a professional. So I think tertiary um, education is just like little windows that open in your brain. So, and you just, it's, it's kind of, you wanna open more and more windows. So you just keep on going that way. It's just stretching a bit further. That's the way I feel about higher education.
1: And that concludes another Ascalite Wavelength podcast. Thanks to our segment producers, Michael Cowling, Amanda White and David Porter, and our guests, Michael Milford and Gerhard Hambush, and our students, Gayani, Juliana and Zach. Music for the podcast is produced and performed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. Thank you for listening to the Ascalite Wavelength Podcast. Find out more at ascalite.org. That's A-S-C-I-L-I-T-E dot
0: Hi, I'm David Porter, one of the producers of the Ascolite Wavelength podcast. I just wanted to take a moment to invite you to be part of the podcast. We've designed the Ascolite Wavelength podcast to be community contributed. We invite academics, professionals, and affiliates passionate about learning and teaching in tertiary education to pitch and produce podcast segments. If you are interested, we invite you to visit ascilite.org. And check out the Connect section for further details and submission guidelines. And we at Ascolite want to thank you for listening.